from 102.3 WHIV in New Orleans and broadcasting around the world at whivfm.org. This is Health is a Human Right radio show. Protecting people like yourself I have some news for you We're here to defend wealth I have some news for you We're here to defend wealth Tra-la-la-la A public service announcement with guitar. Hey, hey, let's go. This is 102.3 WHIV LPFM. Uh, and this is <laughs> Health is a Human Right and All It Matters. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, I have sitting in the booth with me is Bob Dunn. Bob, does you want to finish your thoughts on uh, Bob is our radio engineer? No. I have nothing to say. <laughs> and Bob is the brilliance behind WHIV. Uh, not very brilliant. <laughs> uh, we'll finish this conversation. But, but thank you very much. You're much too kind, Dr. Deary. You are quite brilliant. And, and so for now, we say Auf Wiedersehen, adios, au revoir. And all that good stuff. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. All right. <laughs> That's Bob Dunn, everybody. We love Bob Dunn. Uh, as I have said once, I've said it a million times, if there was uh, no Bob Dunn, uh, no WHIV, again, this is uh, Health is a Human Right. Uh, my name is Mark Allendary. It is uh, a pleasure to, as always, uh, be following the great Lynn Drury and Sharapa. Thank you guys for your amazing uh, show and some of the amazing music that you bring uh, to us. Before we uh, get started, let me uh, say that WHIV is a community uh, radio station that is all and completely volunteer run, and we are here due to your support. So please, if you get a chance, visit our website. We have lots of cool stuff uh, for sale, uh, lots of swag um, that uh, is uh, very, very nice, uh, T-shirts, uh, fanny packs, and what have you. All donations to WHIV are tax-deductible. Uh, they sometimes come with a uh, lovely uh, thank you note for me, uh, and so I always am appreciative of that. But what actually what we really need is are these uh, regular monthly donations. I do appreciate the ones that come in regularly for 420. Ha ha! I see what you guys are doing there. It's very clever. I appreciate that. Uh, so again, please visit whavfm.org forward slash support, and we would appreciate all of your support at WHIV. We are not a radio, we are not a radio station with a mission. We are a mission with a radio station and all wars all right so let's uh, get started here today uh this is a, a pleasure to uh, welcome back to whiv uh robert uh god bless it is it, it's i meant to ask you fiesler fiesler any it's okay man fiesler <laughs> it's, a, it's a weird german name so kind of any way you pronounce it if it seems it's like someone's Feisler, trying Feisler, it's, Feisler, it's totally it, just, fine i've heard it every old way got it how do you pronounce it Fiesler, but then sometimes I'll screw it up, and then my mom will be like, "That's not the way you say it." Yeah, it's like (laughs) technically it's like Fiesler, but I can't, I can barely say it. It was like my last name is Dare, you know, and my my family, my French family gets pissed at me because I just pronounce it Dare. 
Like, mm-hmm. you're so American. I'm like, yeah, I know. I'm American. The rest <laughs> of my family's from Morocco. Right? Oh, wow. Yeah, and, or North Af- uh, in North Africa. So it's Dere. And I'm like, I, I just say Dere. Yeah. Mm. My first name is Mark Allen, but they pronounce it Mark Allen. Mm. <laughs> and so they're like, oh, you just Americanize everything. And I do because I'm from the U.S., so I'm not from Morocco. Anyway, all that being said, Robert Fiesler is the acclaimed debut author of Tinderbox, the untold story of the upstairs lounge fire and the rise of gay liberation. And he's also a finalist for the Randy Schultz Award for gay nonfiction and the Edgar. Didn't win. Yeah, I was going to ask an update about that. And then I did win the Edgar. Yeah, all right, yeah. all right. Let's won move. the Edgar Let, Award for Best Fat Crime. So this is the first uh, gay history ever to win in that category for the Edgar Awards. All right, well, yeah. let's, let's, let's talk about that in a second. We'll, we'll lead with that, okay? Yeah. Um, Bobby Fiesler graduated uh, co-valedictorian, congratulations, from Columbia University's Graduate School of Journalism. That's no small feat, I imagine. And is a recipient of the Pulitzer Traveling Fellowship. He lives with his husband in New Orleans. You can find him at Robert Fiesler on Facebook. On Twitter, he tweets at Word Bobby, and on Instagram, he tweet uh, he Instagrams at Word Bobby. This Thursday at the New Orleans Jazz Museum, he'll be delivering the Friends of the Cabillo second Thursday lecture series, and the title of the lecture is the title of his book, which is again Tinderbox: The Untold Story of the Upstairs Lounge Fire and the Rise of Gay Liberation. The New Orleans Jazz Museum is located at 400 Esplanade Avenue. We may some folks may remember that as the U.S. Mint. It's now changed their name to the New Orleans Jazz Museum. For more information, you can contact 504-523-3939, or you can go to nolajazzmuseum.org and click on the calendar like I did today to look up the uh, show. So, Bobby, welcome back to WHIV. It's such a pleasure to have you back on air. Thank um, you. Happy let, to be here. Yeah. It, let, I guess let's talk about the Edgar Award. So, first wow. of all, so the Randy Schultz Award. Keep going. For, I love this line of conversation. <laughs> yeah, let's just talk about my stuff. So, <laughs> Randy, the, so Randy Schultz was, um, was a notable... Uh, 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 author he wrote for the San Francisco Chronicle, mm-hmm. I think, during the journalist turned historian. There's a great lineage of that in my field. Super, and, and he and wrote the famous book and the band played on, and the band played on, and, and which is of course chronicles and documents the uh, history, the HIV epidemic, mm-hmm. uh, or what was then known as the AIDS epidemic in San Francisco. And uh, just let me just kind of take a quick little side turn. Sure. And just, re- you know, I read some criticism of him recently about, and are you familiar with the history of the book? Or I am. And then it it, it, pos- it, it puts forth the patient zero yes, theory. Yes, that's what, yes, exactly where I was getting to. What, what are your, so let me just kind of quickly just say that. So uh, uh, his name was um, uh, Guiton, uh, Guiton Dugas or Guy, Guy Dugas or yep. Guy Guiton. He was a, he was a French Canadian from Montreal, mm-hmm. uh, and Quebecer and, and a flight attendant and a right? flight attendant and very handsome and, you mm-hmm. know, very debonair in the seventies and eighties and mm-hmm. apparently had, uh, multiple, uh, sexual partners. And there was, uh, across the world, across the world. And there was in the, uh, in the movie and in the book there, they kind of called him quote unquote patient zero. Mm-hmm. which is where the whole concept of like zero comes from like for example like ground zero mm-hmm. or like you know an epidemic you know we would have patient zero or what mm-hmm. have you so that whole concept came because i don't know if you did you ever see those cdc graphs the first cdc graphs oh yeah so they they made them cir- so it was a circle 
that represented a person, a mm-hmm. man with HIV or AIDS who had died of AIDS. And then there was a stick that kind of came from it and that they were attached to this person who was attached to that person. Mm-hmm. And that's how in the early days of HIV, that's how they were able they were to... They trying to chart the they were tra- Yeah, they knew every single person or almost every person that died of AIDS at that point. They could have actually done something mm-hmm. to contain. That's a whole other story and I would love to have you oh, come sure. back to talk about but it. predated that. all of that too. I mean, there were cases of... I mean, and they, well, yes. they found later on yes. into the 1950s. Yes. Even before that. But yeah, yes, yeah. people... I mean, yeah, yeah. HIV has been trying to get into the human population for uh, uh, for hundreds, if not thousands, of years. Mm-hmm. No question. And yes, there are cases before that, but it just there was no superseding uh, event. And some people kind of posit that this big superseding event that happened was at the Fourth of July bicentennial uh, event in New York City. Mm-hmm. You had sailors from all over the world. Uh, kind of descend into New York City for mm-hmm. a week or so, and that there that could have been one of the major kind of superseding uh, events that ultimately led to the, to the epidemic, to the epidemic that we yeah. saw, you know, th- which roughly matches. I mean, usually you look to anywhere between six to 10 years to mm-hmm. start to see some changes, you know, to see the effects of HIV kind of develop into AIDS. And so mm-hmm. that kind of matches, but essentially the, um, that because it was a circle, that was how patient zero came about because wow. it wasn't patient O or wasn't patient circle. So they just had patient zero and that's where the whole concept of zero came from. But you're probably better posed to kind of pick up the story from here. Oh my gosh. But, no, I mean, I, I think you're, you're probably more well versed in this than I am. So essentially, uh, Randy Schultz kind of criticized, uh, Guiton. And again, I forget his full name. Uh, Guiton Dugas, I think is what his name was. Mm-hmm. Um, he, and and kind of said things like, you know, after he had sex with a partner without a condom, he's like, now you're going to get the gay cancer as well and what have you, and really denigrated his name and sure. his family. And, of course, he went on to, not of course, but, it, uh, you know, he died of AIDS mm-hmm. uh, himself. And his family spent uh, uh, several decades to actually clear his name. And what they ultimately did, interestingly, are you familiar with this part of the story? Mm-mm, keep yeah. going. So what they actually did was they actually kept his virus they knew so they were able to do genetic analysis on his virus and as they were able to go back and do genetic analyses um, of the early HIV viruses they found that the virus that he had was not responsible for a majority of the cases that Mm. transmitted so statistically it just didn't match if he was so-called responsible for being the major the primary carrier, the, the primary carry, and, and really, epidemic. and didn't care, and was you know this sure. cold, heartless, careless, Blase, yeah, you know, I have it now, French you have Canadian, it too, right? Yeah, um, you know, slut flight attendant, they posit, right, 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 exactly, what was the right. reputation what, of him, and, right. and and even in the HBO limited television series, which won Emmy awards like right. crazy, actually, yeah. Ian McKellen's in it, like a younger yeah. Ian McKellen. Um, he he's portrayed in that sort of manner. He's maligned, right? Yeah, yeah. It, well, I mean, I mean, it's for every good story needs a bad character, and he just kind of fit that 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 role, or it was easy mm-hmm. to put him in that role. But I, you know, and I myself have have taught classes about how Patient Zero and Gitan Dugas was responsible for all these cases. Now, uh, when I start lectures, I'll oftentimes start a lecture with the, the study showing that his name was completely cleared. Yeah, good. So just there's that's a, a little... There's a book that uh, my colleague David France wrote. I believe it came out... Initially, it was a documentary around, I think, 2010 called How to Survive a Plague. Where yeah, it uh, he, was a movie. And it was initially a documentary, then it, then it was a book, uh, which was, a, a, again, an, a, an expansive corrective that really took on Randy Schultz's And the Band Played On. Right. And um, 
with the purpose of dispelling, I think, some of the myths that that book perpetrated, right. though at the time that was considered great research. Yeah, it was considered, I mean, it was considered, I, I mean, I read it, right, I read it as a, you know, young HIV doctor because that was the source to go to. That's what all of my attendings told mm-hmm. me that I needed to read to understand, uh, to understand the, mm-hmm. uh, the epidemic. And so as soon as I got to New Orleans, actually I bought it at the little, um, that that little uh, bookstore on Frenchman Street. Oh, the, one the Faberg Marigny bookstore, yeah, yeah. which was the gay bookstore. <laughs> yeah, which was the gay bookstore, right? Um, yeah, which course. was run by Alan Robinson at the time, right. a very famous gay rights activist in New Orleans, very right. important guy. And who and he, and he sold it to. I know there was a big controversy in the last couple of weeks when the new owners. Did you you know the new owners con- called the police on some musicians that were out oh there? Oh my gosh! It was a, it was a huge. <laughs> we've been covering it here on he WHIV. Sold it to Otis Fennell, who ran it for a span of time throughout the 1990s. Then Otis sold it to this oh, the, got the, this it. next uh, owner. Got it. Um, so there's kind of a handoff. Right. So, but it was it has a tradition of having a, a, a LGBT kind oh, of certainly. ownership to it, yep. right? And and a focus on that as well, sure. right? Sure. I think it was one of the last gay bookstores in the South. It's very hard for any bookstore to make a go of it now, especially, especially gay bookstores, though. I would imagine. I would imagine. So, all right. So, the Randy Schultz, uh, let's see, the Randy Schultz Award, Award for Gay yeah. Nonfiction yeah. did not win. No, I didn't. But I was up and nominated with like a few incre- really incredible books, and like Tinderbox is my debut work of nonfiction. So I was up and nominated with Alexander Chi, who's like a a, a queer literary darling, very cute Asian guy that wrote a, um, a an essay, really great book of essays called um, "How to Write an Autobiographical Novel," and then. Uh, Miss Fade, Miss Lillian Faderman, who wrote a great biography of Harvey Milk. Oh, and then the book that w- it was Jeffrey Stewart's book um, that won the National Book Award and Pulitzer Prize. So I mean, I was in yeah, good company, were, like I was right. not expecting sure. anything, and I didn't expect anything from the one I won. Yeah, either. so the Edgar Awards, they were on the same that. night. So were I they really? I couldn't go to both of them. I had to send a representative of my publisher so to which the Triangle one did you go Awards. To? I went to the Edgar Awards. They were the uh, ones. Did you know you were going to win? Or no, they were the ones that nominated me first, and I danced with the one that brought me. I don't, you know. I don't play right. those games. If they if I get invited by someone to town and then someone else invites me, right. like I'm gonna go to the first you know the first group that invited me. Sure. So I didn't know I was gonna win, and it was weird because it's best fact crime, which is like a true crime genre category right. done by the Mystery Writers of America, and it's the Edgars are a, a funny award where like they give out a TV teleplay, and then it's you know uh, mystery thrillers. And it's a YA, and it's all sorts of different uh, different books. And then they do a true crime award, and I was up against um, Michelle McNamara's "I'll Be Gone in the Dark," which everyone thought was going to win. So I I went there. I my publisher had told me to write an acceptance speech with the caveat that don't expect to win. Right. And they they sort of run it like the Oscars, where they make you you wear a tuxedo there. I only own one tuxedo, my Mardi Gras tux. So I had my tuxedo with like a purple bow tie, and I looked like I was from New Orleans there. <laughs> And then they do it like the Oscars where they, they flash your book up on a large screen. Oh, it's really? Like, and next, Tinderbox. Where and was next, it? This was in uh, the Grand Hyatt in New York City. Oh, wow. Okay. And then Michelle McNamara's I'll Be Gone in the Dark. And then people like applauded really loudly. Sure. And I'm like, well, that's it. And it was they, just the two of you? Uh, no, there was like six nominees. And then, and then in the end, they're like, and then the winner is... Tinderbox. And I was like, what the... And so I, like, I paused and I was like, I just didn't think... I, I paused my friend. I'm laughing. And then my friend turns like, she, you won. You got to go up and accept your was award. You, you was won. your husband with you? or Mm-mm, No, he um, no, he had a gig actually back here. So it was like my good friend who has like supported all of my uh, writing projects. Her name's Enna. She was my date uh, to the to the <laughs> right. to the uh, New York Edgar Awards. 
And then uh, I, had to, I went up there and I accepted the award um, on behalf of the upstairs lounge victims. It was really one of the most incredible things. Were, to were happen. you happy that you had that acceptance speech in your pocket? Yes. At that Would moment, you have like, like you totally understand when you're like, it's almost like you're standing in front of an entire a, a room the size of like maybe your high school prom. Right. If you right. went to a large high school, which sure, I did, I and did so too. or like giving a wedding toast where sure. you could see why people panic. Right. And, right. and oftentimes don't get it right. Right. right so I'm right, glad right. I had everything written down. Good. 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 Yeah. And it must have been a great moment. Oh, are you kidding me? <laughs> I you don't expect that stuff, especially for your first book. So no, it was no, so it was I absolutely wonderful. I hear you. I think that's awesome. Mm-hmm. So if you're tuned in, you are listening to 102.3 WHIV. This is Nolan Matters. Health is a human right, and I'm talking to Bobby Fiesler, uh, who is the author of Tenderbox: The Untold Story of the Upstairs Lounge Fire and the Rise of Gay Liberation. He will be uh, talking uh, this uh, Thursday at the New Orleans Jazz Museum at 400 Esplanade, uh, and he'll be delivering the Friends of the Cabildo. I don't know how to pronounce is it. Cabildo. Cabildo. It's I at 6 p.m. Yeah, Cabildo at 6 p.m., uh, the second Thursday lecture series. And then he'll be talking about his book, uh, The um, Tenderbox, The Untold Story of the Upstairs Lounge Fire and the Rise of Gay Liberation. More information can be found at nolajazzmuseum.org. And you can uh, follow uh, uh, Bobby at uh, Facebook at Robert uh, Fiesler. On Twitter, he tweets at WordBobby. And on Instagram, he is also at Word. Uh, Bobby, well, congratulations uh, for that amazing. And one last question: Thank you. Edgar, is that supposed to be Edgar, Edgar Allan Poe or Edgar Allan Poe? Yeah. Okay, so that's that's pretty amazing. Congratulations! Sure, man, it it's lovely. Thank you. Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> so I know. So we you we had you on for a previous hour. So please, I encourage folks to look up the previous hour where uh, Bobby and I kind of went in depth. Uh, for uh, his book, The uh, Tenderbox, The Upstairs Lounge. But about two weeks before Bobby actually came on to do the interview with me, which I think you did in like May, I think. That sounds about right. Right. That sounds Um, about right. I think it was early May. You came on, and about two weeks prior to that, you had a piece published in the Daily Beast, I Mm -hmm. think. Yep. And as I was reading the piece, I didn't realize it was you until about halfway through it, like it, 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 like the voice started to kind of sound similar mm. to a certain degree to the emails that I read and some of the expert excerpts that I read. And I went back and scrolled to the top and saw that it was you mm. that had written the article. Because I just, you know, you don't always, you know, someone like myself is not, you know, I don't look for, at every journalist or whatever. Oh, sure, and, I do the same thing. I scan first. Uh, yeah, and as I was reading it, I was like, oh, this is a really interesting voice. And then I realized that I, re- I recognized the voice, and I went back to look, and I saw your name. And then uh, we had agreed that after we had done the first interview, we would have you come back and talk about the topic of the second interview, which I thought was really interesting and really something that I think listeners of WHIV would appreciate. And what essentially you talked about in that piece, in which I think you're going to talk about for another piece, or I, I, did you say it was going to be the subject of your next book? Um, no, I mean, I think it would be a great subject a great for a next subject, book, right. but I do think because I'm, I think a, a queer person of color should actually take on that subject of the, of the underground, uh, gay, uh, Absolutely. A person of color history in New Orleans. There's a ton of material. Right. And essentially, just to kind of finish that thought, uh, not to interrupt you, but just to, and and maybe I don't want to put words in your mouth, so maybe you'll correct me, Uh but essentially the, the, the piece was essentially looking at um, not only 
gay liberation, uh, but how sometimes it was almost exclusively gay white male liberation, mm-hmm. and who was out of the picture were certainly communities of color oh, that were queer. And what you were focusing on in that piece that we're going to spend the rest of the hour talking about is the the idea of when we talk about gay liberation, it, like the rest of society, does we automatically assume, oh, queer or gay liberation, yeah. it's, it's pure equity across yeah, the board. Yeah, one big happy family, right. or they think of the modern Rainbow Alliance. Right, which is nothing like that, and, and certainly in the article that you talked about was really quite remarkable, and sure. we'll get to that well, in a second. You. Let's do maybe five minutes, just a quick overcap or review of The Upstairs Lounge. Sure. The Upstairs Lounge fire was, uh, I'll give you my spiel, it's a notoriously unsolved arson fire that took place at a gay bar in 1973 New Orleans, like on the ragtag fringes of the French Quarter, that claimed uh, 32 lives. Uh, It was the deadliest fire on record in New Orleans history um, and the largest mass killing of homosexuals in U.S. history, actually, until the 2016 massacre at Pulse in Orlando. And yet this fire received just a few days of media attention in its time due to rampant rampant anti-gay bigotry. So despite a bounty of evidence existing pointing towards a chief suspect for setting this arson, this intentionally set blaze, um... This fire was deemed politically inconvenient in different times due to their, the homosexual overtones that frankly embarrassed people. And thus was it permitted to become uh, a historic mystery, as it, which is the state of how it exists now. It's still officially an unsolved crime. The chief suspect uh, a year later— Roger Dale Nunez uh, died by suicide in 1974. Right, and I did he admit on on was there some admit was, there was he no like death in bed an AA meeting or wasn't he in like no he was in some, I thought there was he, some uh, confessed group. to a boyfriend. There we go. Okay, who um, right. after his after his death by suicide came forward and uh, gave testimony saying that on several different occasions Roger Roger Dale Nunez confessed to setting the upstairs lounge fire on June 24th 1973. And and just to kind of finish that that train of thought he. Was was at the bar he was causing a bit of a ruckus oh sure he, he got kicked out and then as violently he was, ejected and as he was being kicked out he screamed you know an utterance that was heard by several people he said quote i'm gonna burn you all out right and then uh presumably went around the corner bought a little i don't know in those to days the walgreens to, yeah and there was like a little tin the corner of, of iberville and royal street bought a medium-sized tin of ronsonol lighter fluid right. which was a common you, you would use that in kind of zippo style lighters um, and then it was a person matching his description bought that I should I should specify bought that size of lighter fluid. Then minutes later, that same size and brand of lighter fluid was emptied in the front staircase of the upstairs lounge, giving the name of the lounge its mm-hmm. name, the upstairs lounge, because it had been accessible it, it, uh, only by a single winding staircase from the street that had served as the primary known entrance and exit for all bar patrons of this very popular, very busy bar. And also, to be clear, the um, the stairwell itself also was draped very heavily in oh. the kind of the decor of the time, true to nineteen seventies style, which was cloaked in burlap fabric. Uh, all of which was a fire hazard. Yeah, yeah. I was um, going to say it was very fire repellent. <laughs> red indoor-outdoor carpeting was right. sort of, um, you know, went up all the staircase up to the second story, which is where how you would find the bar. It was not a well-advertised place as a gay mecca. By any means, you could eat quite easily walk past this bar on what was a very dingy, dirty street. Right. 
and, and I think that I mean we've talked at at length. Um, uh, there are several heroes of the story, sure, um, and including the bartender was is a buddy, buddy Rasmussen. Buddy yeah. Rasmussen still yeah. still alive, right? Or? Yeah, he is. He lives yeah. in a kind of peaceful exile, I think, where he he doesn't really talk about the upstairs lounge course, fire anymore. It's too painful. Imagine. But he okay. he lives with his partner in. Um, in Arkansas, I believe. Yeah. He um, had the wherewithal. The Unknown to the bar patrons was there was a back door. Mm-hmm. Um, unmarked. To, yeah. Unmarked back, back door. And uh, Buddy Rasmussen was able to successfully lead a handful of, I think, a dozen or so of individuals. More than a handful. It was about half of the patrons that were in that bar on the busiest night of its week, which right, was which the, the beer night. bus Sunday yeah. night, which was the right. drink special night. You know, one dollar for two hours of unlimited draft beer, which right. attracts quite a bunch of people <laughs> in the seventies, you can imagine. But he he successfully led about forty people 40. off that uh-huh. uh, secret second story back um, exit. Right, and I guess just the last, uh, you know, we talked about how yeah, I think you glossed over, and I I do want to take a moment just to kind of focus in on just the horrific. Um, uh, stories and jokes that were told in the days oh, after yes. the uh, not not to be repeated here, sure. uh, just so as to not give uh, breathe any life into them. Mm-hmm. But there were some horrific and 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 like Bobby said, it was just politically expedient to not have anybody, uh, you know, for the mayor and for the fire marshal or what have you to mm-hmm. uh, to not uh, talk about it. Uh, headlines were uh, plenty, and joke radio commentaries were jokingly making incredible. Incredibly homophobic re- remarks. Sure, it was also also socially expedient too. If so, you were yes, if course. you were you know joking around on the street corner to make fun of this fire, this was an era where homosexuality was probably one of the least popular notions in American culture. Seven out of ten Americans and values and opinions polls at that time period defined homosexuality as always wrong. Right. So um, this was an event where people found great difficulty mustering what would have been the ordinary amount of sympathy that you would muster. For this scale of death and this kind of an emergency event to strike New Orleans, right? And then just two more points to bring up because, I, and I know we talked about it before, but I think that they're bare, they, they're worth repeating. Um, it it um, and I forget the name of the uh, pastor or uh, the the leader, the religious leader, who was able to find a church ultimately. Troy Perry, who was right. the founding pastor of the MCC, of the MCC, who flew from Los Angeles to New Orleans the day after the fire to try to manage this emergency moment. Right, and then after. A week did succeed in finding a church that was willing to hold a public memorial which was saint mark's methodist church still there on rampart street and governor nichols right and then i guess the 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 point that i wanted to bring out because it's a point of pride <laughs> it's an appropriate word to use there for sure. me um is that i know that that uh stonewall is considered kind of like you know major kickoff if not one of the main sparks like a turning that, point moment turning point but i i also do kind of I, I i have heard people refer to the kind of when when a lot of the folks that were there at the congregation instead of sneaking out the back door mm-hmm. when it became clear that there were a lot of journalists out front sure television that, cameras television cameras that their face would have been, you know, they would have been ostracized. In the past, they would have kind of kind of walked out the back so as to not be recognized by mm-hmm. television cameras that every and, and in fact I think somebody I think you told me that that somebody made the announcement that if it, you know the cameras were out front if you wanted to leave in the back door you could yeah you could slink and, out what they called the escape hatch right and then there was this kind of in in mass sort of movement where everybody kind of stood up and proudly mm-hmm. walked out yeah. together a and, woman and, only identified by by anyone that was there that day as a butch lesbian stood up and said I came in the front door and I'm damn well going out 
out that way, and then so everyone rose and followed her. And and I and I see that as also I don't know if it's appropriate for me to do so or not, but I see that as a defining moment uh, and, and something too. that I kind of hang my hat on. That you know that the New Orleans uh, 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 community, the queer community at that time, really kind of helped break through a major barrier uh, sure. in terms of where they'd um, marched out the front door ready to face the cameras and i would imagine people lost jobs and family members saw other family members on tv and which brings to my incredible last, amount of risk to right. do that and then my last point uh, before we start talking about the article and sure. i think one that bears really speaking about too is that um the the upstairs lounge now is called the jamani the Gemini, Gemini, which lounge, is actually the same. It was this. That was the first floor bar, right? Um, same bar that was located on the first floor of that building. That was also the Gemini as well. Mm-hmm. Right, it's back. Original family still owns that right. bar. And then, is there even anything upstairs anymore? Or? No, it's never been reoccupied. Got I don't it. think it was ever declared safe enough to be occupied again after that that event. Also, sure. it was considered a kind of. Um, historical eyesore and also i think it was a social eyesore for new orleans where nobody wanted to deal with even the physical presence of this location so for years there was visible burning on the building and they just threw up plywood boards it kind of uh just looked ramshackle up until about the 90s uh mid 90s or so the jim and i bar uh located one story down uh, eventually purchased that space and then repurposed it as a you know an office and storage. But right. so it's it's never been reoccupied as a drinking establishment right. again. But what I want to talk about really is the plaque that's on the ground. Oh yeah. And if you could just I mean the and what's notable about the plaque is that the plaque is formed as a triangle mm-hmm. um and it has the names of the 33 30, 32 30 32 well, the 29 in, 29, in 29 names, names and then the, and then th- th- the three unidentified. And I was just wondering if you just comment on the three unidentified, why they were unidentified. Sure. So um, this was, well, they were unidentified for several reasons. Number one was the, the physical state of the bodies made identifications very difficult uh, for the coroner in 1973, where some of the individuals that were identified were only identified through the use because the, the state of the, the corpses was so awful. Uh, with, due to the amount of heat that had been in the bar when these people perished, in essence, in a pile, especially uh, in the near the back window where they where their exit was blocked by window bars, um, so in some cases it was only artifacts, or it was uh, the call of an anonymous friend who tipped off would tip off police that they suspected a person had died there, um, and then uh, in, in in other instances families were scared to come forward uh, to claim one of their own as among the dead in a gay bar because at a time at the time that was considered uh, so, such a social blight and so scandalous. And that's the part that really just kind of, I, in one case we've come a long way. Mm-hmm. Good. Right. But sure. on the same time, you know, that was that I was going to say within our lifetime, but it was within my lifetime. It was, you're probably about 10 years or so young. Well, than thank that. you for presuming. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> when did, what year did you graduate from high school? I graduated in 1999. See, you're a little bit 13 years younger. Mm-hmm. All right. But that's fine. But that, that was still within my lifetime that, and I remember that, I remember that time, you mm. know, and so I remember the, not necessarily 1973 per se, but I remember the rampant homophobia that existed oh, sure. to the point where family members just did not want to claim. I mean, that is a high level and a high degree of homophobia oh, that, that, that exists. And it's just, it, it breaks my heart. I, I guess just to kind of put a final bow on that story and that, that there may have been one name, um, that uh, so we may d- be down to two unknowns and possibly so there was an individual who was one of the um, 
he was like not among the confirmed dead, but at one point he was considered a candidate for the upstairs lunch that a gentleman named Larry Frost, whose family recently came forward with new testimony, um, that some of which is compelling, some of which isn't. And honestly, it's a scholarly debate about whether or not that um, that's actually um, can be declared yet about whether or not he's among the upstairs lunch dead because there's no forensic evidence sure. at this point. It's 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 forty five, forty six year old testimony. Um, but yeah, so there there's still ongoing discussion and ongoing efforts to um, to help ID those individuals. Uh, which which I think is one of the most unjust aspects of the upstairs lounge fire, actually, is the fact that uh, 46 years later, we still don't know the names of three of the people who died there. Yeah, yeah. If you're 2D and you are listening to 102.3 WHIV, this is Health is a Human Right. Nola Matters, my name is Mark Calendari, and I'm talking to the great uh, Bobby Feisler, oh, who Lord. is an acclaimed debut author of Tender Fox, The Untold Story of the Upstairs Lounge, Fire and the Rise of Gay Liberation. And he announced to me today that he was the winner of the Edgar Award uh, and Best Fact Crime. Uh, And I think that's so cool. Edgar Award named after Edgar Allan Poe. He Facebooks at Robert Feisler. He tweets at Word Bobby. And he Instagrams at Word Bobby as well. On uh, Thursday at 6 o'clock, he will be delivering the Friends of the Cabildo uh, second Thursday lecture series. And it's the title of the lecture is the name of his book, again called Tenderbox, The Untold Story of the Upstairs Lounge Fire and the Rise of Gay Liberty. That will be, again, at the New Orleans Jazz Museum, located at 400 Esplanade Avenue. More information can be found at nolajazzmuseum.org. The Nola Jazz Museum used to be called the Old U.S. Mint. So with all that, I guess let's spend the the rest of the hour talking about some of the really interesting things that you have been talking about. The Upstairs Lounge has been, the story's been told, uh, movies have been made, documentaries, I think even a musical has been made. Two of them. Um, two of them. Now, one's, one's playing in London currently. Is it really? Yeah, it's called The View Upstairs. Wow. It's actually, a f- it's getting great reviews. Is and a fantastic really? cast. Yeah, a wow. lot of effort went into that production. That's great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I would love to see one here. <laughs> it's crazy to think about, right? Like this <laughs> yes. event that nobody wanted to talk about in New Orleans for decades is now people are singing about it yeah. across the pond in London. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> um, so it, 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 was it in your research that you started to discover that there was... Um, kind of different uh, status uh, uh, in terms uh, differing statuses uh, amongst communities of color within the gay who, underground. With, yeah, so I, I in I'm the 1970s. Yeah, I'm take I mean, a step it, back and let you finish. Sure, it was uh, it was fascinating. So it was much easier as a reporter to get people to talk about queer oppression in the 1970s that it was to to get them to talk about racial politics and i'm not from new orleans and i'm not from the south like i'm from i'm from the midwest which isn't to say that i'm from chicago which isn't to say chicago doesn't have its own racial set of racial difficulties it's an incredibly segregated city where half of the city is considered by the the northern you know the north side uh, chicago population is considered no go uh, because of racial animosity but um it was very it was only near the end of my research into Tinderbox that I started to get any shades of the fact that it wasn't just one big happy family within this uh, semi-closeted, secretive gay underworld inside 1970s New Orleans, that there was actually a basement underneath that. And that basement, um, in, within that basement, the, the individuals who were devoted to that space were actually the black gay New Orleanians who, it turns out, were not even welcome in most of the in the white 
gay bars that existed on Bourbon Street at the time period. So I was I, I was shocked, and I wanted to see was this was this true just of New Orleans, or were, was this true in other cities? And I you begin to see a sort of uh, a national reality bloom and develop as I was doing this research where I was finding in gay literature throughout the time references to this word that I didn't understand. Dinge. Snow. I didn't, I didn't understand what these terms meant, so I had to go back. It's not like there's a dictionary from 1970s gay slang. So I had to I started, fortunately, I live in New Orleans, and this is a city where if you're confused about something, if you ask someone, someone's going to tell you. They're going to lay it out for you. And um, I went and I found, uh, I, wanted, I asked uh, Frank Perez, who's a local gay historian, who are some um, individ- queer people of color, individuals who were around in the 1970s, 1980s. And I went and I met, I met these incredible you know, visionary leaders uh, who were very important in queer New Orleans culture. And they, they set me straight about what that meant. Dinge was, referen- was then considered an acceptable street slang term, which was a, uh, it's a racial term for a black gay person. Snow was, was a rich, racial term for a white gay person. And dinge, what, what, what disturbed me more about this was dinge was reference to dinginess or dirt. I mean, this was yeah. not... This was not by contemporary terms, this is this is this is considered horrific. But this was this was considered acceptable street speak, not just in New Orleans, but throughout gay culture. You see, Larry Kramer, who's the famous gay activist for like Normal Heart, etc., right. um, utilize in his in his uh, book Faggots, which was a, I, I'm sorry to say that in terrestrial radio, but that was the title of his book. Um, uh, he utilizes the term dinge, and then Andrew, does he using it historically, or is he using it like colloquially? Uh, he's using it colloquially. This is this so is a book the, from the 70s. Okay, talking, it's a book from the 70s. Talking okay, about right, uh, right. talking about um, within the context of. Uh, of gay society how you would speak about a, a black gay man if you were a white gay man and uh similarly in andrew holleran's famous famous fire island book which is like the ultimate fire island book dancer from the dance it's just an incredible incredible novel references din- dinge culture and dib- dinge subculture in early 1970s new york city so what i what i started to find was these were national gay terms that somehow became um, appropriated by queer New Orleans culture and then given a different, more insidious spin almost, given the racial politics and racial history of the South, the Creole South, all of that. I mean, it it took hold um, quite strongly, um, especially around the time of early 1970s when the Upstairs Lounge Fire took place, where uh, people to this day... um, it's difficult to get them to admit, although they eventually they will admit when among sources, um, to the degree to which there there remained in a community you'd expect to be one happy queer family. There was there was rampant racial segregation um, and gender se- segregation at that same time too. So there's all these nuances and splits whereby there were subgroups within subgroups within subgroups, and they were all sort of balkanized and isolated from each other. Um, to the point where there wasn't a lot of communication. So it took me forever to learn that there, um, the upstairs lounge was unique, not just uh, because it was a sort of a, a, you know a, a all-welcome sort of environment where everybody uh, sort of knew each other's name, et cetera. What was fantastic and really interesting about it and, and significant about it was that it was an interracial gay bar at a time when there weren't other interracial gay bars. And I started to ask my, and also I, I started to ask myself, would, would, was that significant? Did that play a role in the way people responded with such vituperation, with such, with such animosity towards the burning of this bar specifically, rather than perhaps one of the more Tony A gay bars where upper class 
uh, queers like to drink. And I decided that, in, in, based on my research, that there there was actually a little bit of something to that. That the upstairs lounge, with the way that it, this was a bar where um, the occasional black gay patron was welcome to drink and date and socialize and sing beside uh, more more often than not white gay patrons, was starting to send ripples of animosity throughout the queer community at that time. And then down the street from the upstairs lounge, down Iberville Street, um, there was an equivalent second-story gay bar called the Safari Lounge, where uh, black drag queens would perform, queens you would never see elsewhere, according to the great... Uh, this was an interview I had about the Safari Lounge by the, it was the great uh, queer New Orleans presence and, uh, and heroine Regina Adams, who was actually herself an, an, an upstairs lounge survivor and who uh, lost her lover, Reginald Adams, who was African-American, to the flames of the upstairs lounge. Where she was recalling, uh, she was recalling her tri- her visits and her trips inside the Safari Lounge, and what a remarkable little queer subculture there was inside this black gay establishment, black owned, black managed, um, and then this bar, suddenly, about a week later, actually it's not even a week later, the the upstairs lounge fire took place on a Sunday. By that Thursday. The Safari Lounge had been closed surreptitiously, citing fire code violations no one had heard before. And I start to, I started to see that there was a there was a whole other degree of victimization that occurred um, after and during the upstairs lounge that had a lot to do with racial politics. Well, well okay, Ex- explain. I mean, I, I know that. Explain what what happened. I mean, why did they? Sure. What is your theory on that? Sure. Um, so the. The, the main action on behalf of the city and state after the upstairs lounge was not uh, let's look at queer oppression in the 1970s. The primary reaction about La- laugh with me what, right. about, <laughs> about what we're going to do was that this bar is unsafe. There are a lot of unsafe bars specifically in the French Quarter, and we're and we're going to take a look at all of them. We're going to make sure they get fined. We're going to make sure they put up uh, all the properly emer- proper emergency exits. We're going to make sure. Uh, that something like this never happens again, especially not to tourists who we want to be drinking on the bars on Bourbon Street. And um, But within this fire code uh, crusade that took place after the upstairs lounge, actually the bars that were looked at hardest were all the gay bars. Okay. And then the bars that were uh, that essentially were victimized the most, that fell victim to this fire code campaign, were specifically black gay bars. And most specifically, it was the Safari Lounge, which was the black gay bar down the street from the upstairs lounge. A second-story gay bar that had served black gay patrons was, days after the upstairs lounge, closed by city authorities, sort of without explanation, never reopened. And thus did, strangely enough, one fire succeed in making two gay bar cultures disappear on the same city street. Isn't that fascinating within the same couple days yeah of course it is of course it is and these two communities were so isolated from each other i mean the the uh the the safari lounge crowd was even more hidden than the upstairs lounge crowd the upstairs lounge crowd was predominantly although it was an interracial bar predominantly white blue collar uh and and the safari lounge was predominantly black blue collar so um even more um really even more vulnerable in the state of that time with when you consider what Southern racial politics are, et cetera, such that when the Safari Lounge was closed, no one spoke out, especially no one in the extra hidden black gay community at that period of time who couldn't afford 
right, to, to take such a risk in their, in, in their personal and professional lives, et cetera, by raising a hubbub about the closing of a black gay bar that's by the, co- by the social and moral codes of that, that time not even supposed to exist. I mean, this was a bar that was frequented by black gay men who often walked in and walked out wearing wedding rings. Um, and, and these communities were so isolated each o- from each other that when the safari lounge was closed, many people in the gay New Orleans community, predominantly the, the white gay New Orleans community, um, weren't even aware that the safari lounge had served black patrons. Wow. Wow. So it was that underground, huh? Mm-hmm. And then it was even misreported in the pages of uh, of The Advocate, which was then a, a ragtag um, the advocate was around then. Newsletter in Los Angeles, yeah. not uh, like right, 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 not, right. not the, the gay the, advocate, right, right, not, right, right. not the advocate Times <laughs> Picayune. Like, yeah, right, yeah. Right, right. Where they reported about the 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 the, the gay the queer advocate yes. re- reporting out of Los Angeles was um, ran some of the most um, enterprising stories about the upstairs lounge fire, and they mentioned in one of these reports that the safari a bar called the a second story bar called the Safari Lounge was closed down the street from the upstairs lounge on Thursday, and then they they made the mistake they misreported they said the safari is not gay and it it took years of an additional set of years of digging really about a year and a half or so where i was able to legitimize speak to people who'd been in 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 the safari lounge find the little um secretive gay travel guides that existed for when people would go to new orleans that identified the safari as queer to realize that something else had happened here in the wake of the upstairs lounge fire that i don't think people were that i don't think people knew about and i think was evocative of the fact that there was great division between the races even within the queer community and i of course once i discovered that this story spun i had to go i had to, to spin down that rabbit's hole and um and see about the entire lineage of it, which took me into the gay Mardi Gras scene, which took me into all sorts of aspects of modern queer culture. So can I ask you real quickly, were you able to get the queer advocate to put post a, a, a correction even all these years later? No. How, did you try? No, not yet, no. Although I think okay. they're aware of the article. Okay, okay. Because I mean, I think that I, whoever's the editor now probably has no idea what was... Said. Oh, sure. It was said back in the 70s. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. I would imagine that the online or the microfeature or whatever, it would be interesting to, you know, to have a correction. To see post, if they make a correction. To see yeah. if they post a correction. So we have about that five. That would be meaningful. Yeah. I think that would be really meaningful. Um, and then when you do it, please come back on air and let's celebrate that moment. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> um, the other thing I wanted to talk about is that, uh, again, we have to be, time goes by really quick when you're on sure. air. So I promise you we'll do another hour. I yeah, promise yeah. you. Oh, okay. So, so we don't have to like rush through this. So, but like so now you went down the rabbit hole so i what i really want to focus in and and i, and I want to focus in on the 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 racial relations at the time i mean obviously this past weekend we see that we're still um a predominantly patriarchal white supremacy culture mm. and uh, in the 70s that was i mean at least now we actually have senators that are starting to say these words and i think the president even said it today but out of the president's mouth it means nothing to me but mm-hmm. you know we 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 heard some of the presidential candidates uh, certainly i'm thinking of Marianne Williams who really gave a very nice kind of uh uh um her support uh, for reparations and really spoke somewhat eloquently mm-hmm. uh about the white supremacy culture that we live in of course this weekend was a gruesome uh illustration of that um but talk about some of those differences that existed even i mean it was there present obviously in the non-gay culture so 
to a large degree, we were going to see a large part of that in the gay culture uh, mm. as well as representative of different bars, um, different Mardi Gras, uh, Mardi Gras crews, mm-hmm. uh, just different elements of how the gay culture. And, and again, it's the same thing. I as I was reading through your article and I was realizing what you were doing in this Daily Beast article was that you were really portraying that it wasn't one big happy family. It's mm. easy to look back and just see, you know, we look at the the pride parades today and we just see one happy big family, but sure. in the 70s there wasn't a big happy family and it no, was there were segregated of, significantly by class and by race and they were right. segregated by the sexes, the gay and le- the famous LG political alliance that succeeded in becoming a thing by the late 90s. 1970s did not exist in the early 70s up to the mid 70s when land illegal was founded in 1973 you might know this background a little bit they struggled to find lesbian lawyers willing to become part of a gay organization i mean the gay liberation front when it was that was the big um organization that has the name of gay liberation and gay liberation is the movement that eventually spun out became the lg movement then the lgb lgbt and then until all the acronyms got got added to our great rainbow alliance right um but the beginning gay liberation movement uh they uh, essentially it was the june 28th cell of the the first gay liberation front met in the basement of church of the holy apostle in um uh, in Manhattan, uh, and it was a predominantly white men, white male group where even uh, lesbian, outspoken lesbian leaders would be sort of hushed down at the time. There were great divisions, too, among whether or not uh, they should accept the gay-friendly churches that were starting to be founded at that time, the Metropolitan Community Church, founded by MCC, Troy Perry, right, the MCC, yeah. founded right. by the, the guy, who, um, the gentleman who succeeded in creating that great liberation moment where the people in New Orleans marched out of that church ready to face the cameras. Um, he was a controversial figure in the early gay liberation days, and there was a complete absence of racial minorities who were not even considered part and parcel of the gay liberation conversation early on. Yeah, I mean, I to be honest with you, I didn't even realize, and this is just my bad, and, and, and even though I consider myself uh, you know, a, uh, a huge advocate and somebody who's part of the community uh, through support, I didn't realize that there was even a division of the genders uh, or the sexes until I saw something on like Modern Family. I saw something between, there was a, a funny little si- a skit between uh, two, um, two women and then the, the two gay characters, mm-hmm. and, and there was animosity between the two. And I remember asking somebody about it. And they're like, dude, you don't like they was clear like there was like a big blind spot. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, that was funny. Is that a thing? And they're like, the, you know, the conversation was like, you have no idea about this to you. Mm-hmm. So that so it even surprised me because, again, I would just figure, you know, communities that are oppressed would would bond together mm-hmm. but the infrastructure some of the that, that the, the issues weren't the same in the 70s lesbians were um, out and looking after the they wanted the passage of the equal rights amendment in which, the constitution which amazingly enough we still don't have right in 2019 um, there were concerns about reproductive rights etc and they didn't have the same concerns as gay men who were primarily concerned about police harassment um, at that time period. And then what was what, um, a, a, another wrinkle to add to the, the division and balkanizations was that um, homosexuals in, in early 1970, which was the word most people used, they wouldn't even print the word gay in most newspapers, um, the homosexual community um, was not considered part of the body politic. They were radicals, okay? So even if you, if you were part of the Gay Liberation Front or the, the, the organization that came afterwards, the Gay Activists Alliance, for example, you were not considered and courted by politicians as a legitimate voter. The black community, however, was. 
considered part of the body politic. They had been in- integrated into at least the political conversation, e- e- even if there was great um, angst about it, through the civil rights movement in a lot of places and through outreach in a lot of different cities, such as New Orleans, Mayor Moon Landrieu, um, and, and a lot of other leaders, uh, took great effort uh, to try to court the black vote. Um, this was not something that would happen. There was no politician courting at the time the homosexual sure. vote. Um, that would have that would have in, in essence been the death of your political career at a time, um, and so that also impacted um, the degree to which the black gay community was considered um, between all sorts of rock and uh, rocks and hard places, uh, in, in terms of whether or not uh, some of the leaders of the of the racial civil rights movement who were homosexual, such as Bayard Rustin, who had been um, tied in with the first March on Washington, uh, close advisor and friend of Martin Luther King Jr., or, or whether the legacy of individuals such as James Baldwin, again queer, or um, there was a famous uh, man named Alan Locke, uh, again queer, who had been a mentor in, in the midst of the Harlem Renaissance, whether or not what th- these individuals, whether or not their sexual private lives should be owned and acknowledged as gay, which was what they were, um, or whether or not their race should be fronted for, for what they considered was the most more important human rights battle, which was the, the battle for racial equality. So there was like all of these complexities that get folded into to, to something that happened um, in New Orleans on June 24th, 1973, where a, a, an interracial gay bar burns to the ground. There's one black vin- victim of the fire. And then what's the reaction of authorities? They closed the black gay bar down the street. It's astounding to yeah, me. Yeah, it really is. And those were the only, and that was the only other bar that, that Cl- got... closed immediately. Otherwise, most of the most bars and establishments of that era were able to just pay a few fines. G- gosh it's, knows where the money yeah, went. Yeah, yeah, I can only imagine. Um, do you want to plug that Daily Beast uh, story? Um, I, I know I just pulled you out of the. They can find it by uh, um, uh, by uh, googling your name. Uh, I think there you went by Robert, uh, Robert uh, Feisler, which is F I E S E L E R. And and if you Google that with the upstairs lounge in, yeah. So it's it's the deadly nineteen seventy three blaze that haunts Black Gay New Orleans, and it it sort of uses the upstairs lounge fire as a starting point again to look at the the relationship between the black gay community and the black white community as uh, especially as there's moment especially you'll see in the 1980s where there are genuine efforts toward and concerted efforts for outreach and integration so the, in the 80s there would be an there was an organization that was formed in a lot of major american cities and new orleans had a presence called black and white men together bwmt people forget about this whole movement and the whole purpose of it in the 80s was to encourage interracial courtship, dating, yeah. romance, and to demystify uh, black-white, white-black relations. And then also to get rid of those horrible terms, which do, do we know when Correct. they fell out of... Uh... They really fell out of favor in 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 the mid-1980s, where Good. you would not hear the term dinge anymore, and you would not hear the term snow, Good. and then uh, you would not hear the term dinge queen, who was that that's a white gentleman who prefers mostly black lovers, Got and it. then snow queen was a black right, gentleman who prefers the, uh... mo- mostly white lovers, right. etc. Those terms were then considered old, strangely Good. enough. Other racial terms would be used in a lot of different places, but for some reason in the gay culture, you, um, uh, the, the, especially the word dinge was considered quite disrespectful by then. 
Robert uh, Feisler, who is the acclaimed debut author of Tinderbox, The Untold Story of the Upstairs Lounge Fire and the Rise of Gay Liberation, will be speaking uh, this uh, Thursday at 6 o'clock, delivering the Friends of the Cabildo second Thursday lecture series. Uh, Again, the title of that lecture is Tinderbox, The Untold Story of the Upstairs Lounge Fire and the Rise of Gay Liberation. It's Thursday at 6 p.m. at the New Orleans Jazz Museum. The New Orleans Jazz Museum is located at at 400 Esplanade Avenue. This is where the old uh, U.S. Mint uh, is, and uh, the uh, establishment was ultimately renamed. Also, you can go to nolajazzmuseum.org. Uh, Robert, uh, you can find Bobby at uh, Facebook at Robert Feisler. Tweet, he tweets at Word Bobby and Instagrams at Word Bobby. I'll give you the last word. Thank you so much for letting me be here and talk <laughs> about the upstairs. I, it's just it's astounding to me the way that, that the upstairs lounge fire is this continuously unfolding mystery where if you look at it um, more and more in different ways, what you see are new truths that start to build out that, that shed new light, I think, on what it means to be queer now in America and what it means to be part of the, the rainbow alliance of all our different groups today. I look forward to having you back on and we'll have you on for another hour to have more of this conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much, Bobby.
some sweet sounds of Dr. John there. Actually, I just added this to the WHIV uh, playlist uh, down in New Orleans. Such a great song. I can't believe it's a Disney song. Please have a seat. Did you know that WHIV is a volunteer-driven community radio station? We're able to honor independent voices with your support. So please stand for human rights and social justice by becoming a member of WHIV today. Monthly memberships are flexible. They could be a dollar, five, ten, twenty, any amount that works for you. Or you can represent WHIV with a T-shirt, tank top, fanny pack, and more that can be found online. Go to whivfm.org and click support or store. Again, that's whivfm.org. 